You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Almighty God, we give you thanks. Uh, we thank you for the worship some of us have already uh, participated in. We thank you, Lord, for the, uh, the service afterwards. Um, we ask, Lord, that you would be with us now as we gather around your word, that you would inspire us uh, to your truth, which is ultimately your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, thank you all for coming. Uh, just a refresher from, from last week. If you were here, great. You, you know what we did. If you weren't, uh, we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and so last week, um, we looked at the Beatitudes. So uh, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, um, etc., etc. And the conclusion drawn, I mean, we can go line by line and, and assume uh, each case is unique. They are. But I, I, I argue that it's sort of a, a non-exhaustive uh, category that Jesus draws near to and blesses um, those who otherwise the world would never uh, deign to recognize. And uh, we ended last week, I'll encourage you to go listen to Johnny Cash's uh, Man in Black. You may know that that song. Uh, But that that song kind of captures, in a way, our Christology, that Jesus bears the sins and iniquities of the world and draws close to us and blesses us even in uh, the darkest moments of life. Well, this week we're, we're gathering and we're going to continue on. Uh, just so you know, the Sermon on the Mount is three chapters, three hefty chapters from Matthew's Gospel, five, six, and seven. And it is uh, impossible that in five weeks' time we could exhaust um, the whole entire uh, sermon. So we're, we're kind of selectively having to go a little bit. But the heavy end here, uh, on the front end rather, uh, I do want to spend some time on these verses. Uh, can most of you see that reasonably well? If you have a Bible, that's probably more handy. I oscillate between, is it better to do handouts, is it better to do, and I think handouts is obviously the answer as it goes off, uh, again, Mr. Luddite up here, um, but tell you what, I'll read, in theory, read this, um, and then we can discuss, and I want probably going to go out of order, I'll read it in order, um, and then we'll go out of order considering the content. Alright, so this is Matthew chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled upon or under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to stop there. I did copy and paste into pages uh, the the rest of chapter 5. And you kind of notice the subheadings uh, or headings of each each chapter, uh, each passage. And we're dealing kind of with an extended discussion of the law. And so Jesus raises the, um, the topic of the law. He says, not, uh, he's not come to abolish the law of the prophets, but rather to fulfill them. Now, I don't know, I can kind of look around the room and assume a little bit about how long you've been at the Advent. Some of you I've known for a while. 
But if you haven't been uh, at the Advent in a long time, um, this this distinction between law and grace or law and the gospel, it may be new, uh, new verbiage for you. Uh, but if you've been around the Advent, you know this is very much uh, a part of our heart and our heritage, both at the Advent, uh, then also in the larger Episcopal Church, and then you might say in the larger uh, Reformed or Reformational uh, tradition. But Jesus says that, I've come not to abolish the law and prophets, uh, but instead uh, to fulfill them. Now, why, why is that important? Often we think, um, where we hear, you know, Jesus has come to do a new thing, and indeed he has, but not at the expense of throwing out the Old Testament. So when you hear law and prophets, that's sort of shorthand for Old Testament. Uh, First century Jews uh, would say law and prophets. And of course, they're referring to uh, the books of Moses. That's the law, the first five books of the Bible. And then the prophets, um, you know, of course, uh, that larger portion uh, of various uh, prophets who wrote and spoke um, oracles of God, prophecies of God. Uh, and then lastly, he doesn't say this, but it's assumed uh, when he says this kind of thing. Again, they would say law and prophets. But that third category of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is called the writings. Have you heard that expression before? The law, the prophets, and the writings. And the writings is sort of a catch-all um, for the Psalms, Proverbs, wisdom literature, uh, and anything that doesn't neatly fall into the law and the prophets. But he's come not to abolish them, but instead uh, to fulfill them. Why that's important for you and me, several, several points. One, Uh, the first three-fourths of our Bible, we don't just throw out. This was the problem. uh, This this is a perennial problem in Christianity. This was the problem with an early heretic uh, by the name of Marcion. Uh, Some people say Martian, but it's actually Marcion, I believe. Uh, And he believed that the God of the Old Testament was this angry, judgmental God, and that completely stands in the face with uh, Jesus in the New Testament. And so he just, kind of like Thomas Jefferson, took scissors and cut out uh, the parts that he didn't like. Similarly, uh, If you go to the 20th century, uh, Germany. Germany became very anti-Semitic, and there's a whole host of reasons for that. I'm not a historian, but uh, you can, in some ways, um, blame Luther. I love Luther, he's my favorite theologian, Uh, but some things that Luther said caught on in the German language. Uh, And then much later, a guy named Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, And then there's, again, philosophically, historically, sociologically, a lot of reasons, but it got to the point in, German Christian circles where the, the Old Testament, sure, maybe it's part of our canon, but that, that's, that's the, the Jewish God. We are Christians. So this is a perennial problem. And so when Jesus says this, he came not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's an important word for you and me. Uh, the Old Testament still speaks. It's still God's word. The law and the prophets are still uh, God's word. What does he mean by fulfill it, though? And again, not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. In other words, uh, he's not discrediting what Moses said uh, on Mount Sinai. In fact, he's living it. He is doing all that was commanded. And that's good news for you and me, uh, because while the law is still effective for you and me, um, we know that we can't accomplish it. We all know, as we confess uh, from Romans, uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And similarly, when we go to Holy Communion here at the Advent or any other Episcopal Church, uh, we hear the two great commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is likened to it, love your neighbor as yourself. And what's our response when we say that? Do you know liturgically what we say right after that? Thanks be to God. Not quite. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. In other words, we have not and cannot fully keep this law. And so we, we worship someone who has kept the law and does uh, keep the law and has done it on our behalf. 
And so uh, I'm using this as sort of a springboard this morning to talk about, uh, broadly speaking, uh, the law. And so I'm not leaving out the prophets, but the law is an important category. And again, because Jesus goes on an extended discussion, anger and lust and divorce and oaths, retaliation and loving our enemies. Um, and again, these aren't exhaustive, but I think these are clear examples of where Jesus is not lightening the law. He's not abolishing the law. In fact, he's ratcheting it up. He's making it even harder. It's easy enough to go to the Old Testament and, and try to follow the commandments. But when Jesus starts saying, not only are you not supposed to kill, but you're also not supposed to have anger in your heart. That's just as bad. You see what he's doing? He's ratcheting up the law. He's saying, you think the outward act of um, being compliant is enough? No, uh, there has to be a heart transformation as well. And again, that's something as we take Holy Communion throughout that service, uh, the heart, the heart is, is foremost. We open with a prayer, Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit. Then later on, uh, as we've, we've moved from uh, the word to the table, we, uh, the priest or the celebrant says, lift up your hearts. And why do we do that there? It's, we've confessed our sins, we've been forgiven. Now we can actually lift up our hearts. So all that to say is um, Jesus has ratcheted up the law, he's up the ante, and uh, it goes to heart level. It's not simply uh, outward appearances, but what's on the inside. And again, our response perhaps would be, Lord, have mercy upon us. Because just think for a moment. Think about uh, the last person you were angry with. Uh, and think about what you really would like to do to them. Sure, outwardly you may have restrained yourself, but inwardly uh, you were a wild beast, ready to tear them apart. And so uh, I want to take a moment. I'm going to switch gears here with our visual. I want to introduce you to, uh, and perhaps reintroduce you, you may have seen before. Well, doggone it. Here we go. Uh, this is a woodcut uh, piece of artwork from a guy named Lucas Cronach. And I know it's black and white, it's hard to see. Uh, and I would encourage maybe, can, can most of you kind of make out the picture? Okay. Lucas Cronach was a contemporary of Luther's, lived in Germany. Uh, and he, this has all been brought back to me this week. John O'Leinbaugh spent some time with the staff. John O uh, is taught here at the Advent uh, as a professor at Beeson. And I actually got to see this in person in Germany in 2016. Not this particular one, but the, uh, the several versions of it. Anyways, this piece uh, is sometimes called Law and Gospel or Law and Grace, um, and there's a lot going on here, and I think it illustrates much of what uh, Jesus has done and is doing in the New Testament, uh, but also what he says. Okay, so the basic structure of what's going on here, you can clearly see there's a dividing line between two kind of panels or images, and the progression here is the left side, you see scenes of judgment, you see uh, scenes of uh, the law. I'm just going to walk up close to point out some of the figures here. So kind of the main piece here, there's, there's several scenes going on, but uh, we have a man here, a human being. And again, this is not a particular man, but this all of us can be in that category, male, female, doesn't matter. And what's going on, as you can make out, he's, he's running, right? Do you see what he's running towards? Can you make out what that is? Fire. That's fire, and there's people suffering. So this is, of course, a depiction of hell. And he's being prodded along you see that spear and it may be hard from your vantage point and again I would encourage you to google this when you get home and and, and look at it a little closer um, who's wielding the spear as far as you can tell a skeleton and from medieval art a skeleton often is uh, a depiction of death so, so death is driving us uh, in this life the fear of death 
And then next to him is another figure, and you probably can't make that out, but um, it's a demon of sorts. And again, that's the, the powers of evil, Satan. So the powers of evil and death, the powers of sin and death, are driving us towards uh, judgment, uh, driving us towards damnation. And you'll notice right here, while they are not the ones actually driving the person, good mercy, uh, I think God just uses me as a fool uh, to make you all <laughs> laugh. Uh, what do you make out right here? That's, that's Moses holding the tablets of the law. Now, you notice the law itself, while holy and good and righteous, as we learned from Paul, uh, it's not directly connected to it, but he's the one preaching the sermon. He's the one driving uh, driving this in a way. Even though he's not the instrument of, of death, the law is driving it in a sense. Now, several other scenes going on. What do you make this out to be here? It's Adam and Eve, and again, the figure or the picture is not as clear, but there's a serpent around the tree tempting them. And again, tempting them with that perennial, um, that perennial word, that perennial lie, I should say, uh, that we can be like God that we can be like God. So there's a belief that in our self-sufficiency, our actions, our agency, uh, that we can do it, that we can be like God. And of course we know that was uh, the entrance of, of death into this world, of separation from God. And then up here you've got uh, another scene. What, what, what can you make of that up in the heavens? Yeah, and so, and even more specifically, God, yes, and some angels, but it's Jesus on his throne of judgment. And so, that's a New Testament image, uh, not Old Testament. Most of these are kind of Old Testament, but I think it's important to note there's uh, judgment and damnation in the New Testament as well. All right, so that's, that's the hard part. This is the hard word of the law and sin and death. Now, let's go to the other side. What, what do we see as a counterpoint? What do you make to be the main thrust of that right panel? Jesus on the cross. And you notice flowing out of him, of course, uh, from the Bible we know it's blood. And you see that little dove kind of in between, and that dove has turned it to water. And so the, through baptism, uh, we're connected uh, to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and his love poured out for us. Um, it's a person pointing. So we had a preacher over here preaching the law, Moses preaching the law. We've got a preacher here. What is he preaching? Well, he's preaching the crucifixion and the resurrection. He's preaching the good news of the gospel. And you notice the, the expression. There's, there's a great counterpoint here. This man is tormented. He's in fear. He's running. This man is hopeful. He's restored. He's at peace. He's longing for uh, uh, the goodness of God. So, and of course, the resurrection here. The resurrected Christ, uh, what's beneath his feet as far as you can make out? There's a beast. It's the same beast and the same skeleton over here. In other words, the gospel has trampled sin and death, the powers of evil and death, uh, under God's feet. And again, that's a promise from Genesis, right? What does God say unto uh, the woman? Uh, that from her line uh, an offspring will be given, and under his heel will he crush the head of the serpent. So the same powers operative over here uh, Jesus has conquered by his resurrection uh, from, from death. A couple of other things to point out. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Of course, that's Jesus uh, in between. And then back here, this is another curious uh, selection here. Now, Cronach, uh, the person who uh, carved this woodcut uh, and painted the paintings, he kind of went back and forth. There's several editions of this work. Uh, it's really fascinating. But this scene, I know it's hard to make out. This scene comes from numbers. And you have people uh, who have been bitten by snakes in the wilderness, these uh, 
ancient uh, Israelites, uh, Hebrews. And what's on this pole, if you remember from Numbers? What have they held up? A bronze serpent, yeah. So the very instrument, the very means of sin and death, or death, uh, becomes their salvation as they look upon it. Remember, they're saved as they look upon it. And so in some ways we might say that's an Old Testament type or figure for Jesus on the cross. The very instrument of death, a cross, becomes the very instrument for our salvation. So it's, it's, a, nice, it's a nice reminder that the Old Testament is still uh, a word about grace as well. It's not Old Testament, New Testament. It's old and new, old and new. And God speaks this word in this order, in this order. In order to get here, we all first have to be here. We all first have to be tormented by our sin, tormented by our mortality, tormented by the lie of the devil that we can uh, achieve our own salvation and be like God. But as we get to the low of lows um, in judgment, that's when God can finally uh, speak this good word to us. This word doesn't make sense without this word. And so while I'm a gospel preacher, uh, we've got we've to uh, teach the whole counsel of God. Now, Cronach went back and forth, the painter. On occasion, you see this scene over here. It's, it's funny, he kind of went back and forth on where it might go. Um, we'll talk about that maybe another time. But uh, notice the tree in the middle. There's, there's kind of a, a link between trees here. What's going on with the tree in the middle? One side is more loud. Yeah. Yeah, one's barren, so the left side. Uh, and then the right side is fruitful. So what does that suggest to us? The law kills. Uh, the law destroys. The law condemns. There's no fruit. Whereas the gospel uh, gives fruit, it restores, it grows. That's an important word for you and me because, going back to the Sermon on the Mount, going back to um, the law as it's presented, we often think as Christians that following the law, uh, again, will achieve our salvation, will achieve our righteousness, will give growth in our lives. And that chronic is illustrated. Now, you can agree or disagree with him, but I think powerfully illustrated that the law actually kills and condemns and destroys. It, does, it doesn't give life. It doesn't give life. It doesn't have the capability of doing that. And so what enters in, uh, in the Reformation era, and actually goes back to the Middle Ages, uh, they start delineating. They start uh, describing different uses of the law. And you all may have heard this, this before, but... Um, Two uses of the law, perhaps third. And again, it's not our use. It's not, I pick up the law of God, and now I use it accordingly. But more so, it's how the law works on us. We're the passive um, object. Uh, God in His Word is the subject. Uh, but the first use of the law is what would be called the, uh, the civil use of the law. And so, how many of you uh, drive in your car and you get stopped at a red light? That's what we would call the civil use. It creates order. We need that red light. Otherwise, at every... At every um, uh, intersection, people are going to be wrecking. And so the law of God, uh, it creates a just society. It keeps, it keeps people in check. It keeps people from barreling through uh, an intersection and killing one another. Now, does it work in all instances? No, but that's its general function, to keep a just and orderly and good society. So you can take any commandment of God, uh, do not kill. That's a good thing. We, we don't need people dying. Now, of course, people break that law, but as people follow that law, it generally uh, promotes uh, a better society. So that's what you might call the first use or the civil use of the law. Uh, when I'm dealing with my children, I've got a, a two and a half year old daughter, um, and I tell her, don't touch uh, the, the outlet, the electrical outlet. I'm not trying to judge her or condemn her. I'm trying to say, it would be good for you if you didn't do that. It would protect you. Your life would be uh, protected. So the second use of the law 
is what you might call the theological use or the Christological use. And what that means is the law, uh, in the case of Cronach's painting uh, or woodcut, uh, it drives us towards uh, sin and damnation and death. And so Christ comes in and uses that to turn us unto Him. So the things that are fearful and difficult about the law, uh, Christ can use uh, to, to t- turn us towards Him. And as He says here, He's come to fulfill the law. And even though He doesn't say this, you and I know He's done this for us. Not to show off, but He's done it because He's compassionate for us. He's made a way uh, where there was no way. Now the debate comes um, really between Luther and Calvin and kind of their, uh, their progeny, if you will, those who follow. Uh, Luther stopped there, really. Luther believed in two uses of the law. Uh, the law is good for civil obedience, and it's good to drive us towards Christ. Where the Reformed or Calvinist uh, tradition went differently, and some Lutherans did too, but largely speaking, that's the two branches, uh, they started talking about what's called a third use, and you might call that the pedagogical use, uh, or um, the idea is that the law, now, now that we're Christians, now we can use the law and achieve righteousness. God's given us righteousness, but now we follow the law uh, to be righteous. And I think that's trouble. Uh, that's trouble. And I think that goes back to Cronach, that if we start believing that the law <coughs> is our salvation for righteousness uh, and believe that it gives growth, we've mistaken what it does. And so while I'll grant uh, that the law teaches us who God is and how we should be in light of that, it's not the law that achieves that. It's the Holy Spirit in us. It's the Holy Spirit, uh, as we've been assured of the gospel, uh, then we can actually go and love God and love our neighbor. But not by simply following the text. And again, we can be compliant. I mean, many of us may have been good little boys or good little girls and followed the rules, but we all know that that does not achieve righteousness. Uh, if, if, if you are told to give to, let's just say, the poor, and that's what you're supposed to do, well, you can do it. You can, we all can write a check right now or dig in our pockets and give money. But does that necessarily mean you love that person? Not necessarily. It means uh, perhaps that you're doing it because other people are watching and you, you want to be noticed uh, as a good, uh, a good person. Or maybe you want to pat on the back even from uh, yourself and say, oh, I'm just such a good person. Like, just doing the acts that are commanded does not produce righteousness. Uh, but instead, giving from uh, a place of love, as Cameron mentioned, uh, that we're all needy before God when we realize He's given us everything and we can give out of abundance, that's the actual fulfilling of the law. So it's not the law that achieved it. Uh, it's the Holy Spirit who moved our hearts to do that. Now, why, why does this matter to um, our discussion of the Sermon on the Mount? Again, I've gone way off of what's actually here, but I think it's a good frame for how we might understand it. A frame for how we might understand it. <clears throat> so Jesus says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these, verse 19, commandments, and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So it's easy for us to throw the law out. We go, oh, we don't need it anymore. We're Christians. But actually he says, we're not relaxing the law. But do not be mistaken. Uh, it is not us who, in our agency, and our will, uh, can just decide, I'm going to be a good person today. I'm going to follow the law. So it's, it's an important point for us to remember. So it changes perhaps how we read both the Sermon on the Mount, the New Testament at large, the Gospels, and, and the whole Bible. We start realizing that it's not, it's not our agency, but it's God working in us. So as we've been people who've been tormented by the law and moved to God's grace, we can read these in a new light, perhaps. So I'm not going to go line by line between all these, but just in a nutshell, anger, of course. Having anger in our heart um, is just as 
just as guilty before the law as actually killing. Less similarly. Uh, maybe you didn't have an affair, uh, but you had lewd thoughts in your mind. Divorce. This is a hard word. This is a hard word because in, in Jesus' day, there was a debate. You know, is divorce permitted? Is it not? And I'm not uh, looking out on any of you and assuming whether you've been married, divorced, remarried, uh, what have you. But just giving you what Jesus has. The debate was in Jesus' day, Moses granted for divorce. If you read the Old Testament, he granted uh, for divorce. Uh, but Jesus takes takes a you know uh, a harder a harder stance. And there were rabbis in his day that uh, tried their best. He says, "But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery." Again, that's a hard word. But we can't abolish uh, what Jesus has said. And it, again, uh, if you've been divorced, you may say, oh, I'm, I'm doomed. Well, the truth is we're all doomed. If we go back to Cronach, we're all being chased in. But on the flip side, if you're married and not divorced, you may say, I'm a good person. I've fought the good fight. Forgetting all the times uh, you've yelled at your spouse or subtly uh, you know, done uh, things behind his or her back uh, or throwing all the plates on the floor in anger. I mean, we've, we've all been in similar places. So the problem with that view of divorce is, oh, well, I, I've kept it. You believe that you're righteous because of that. That's, that's a problem. Um, going through oaths, keeping our word. I'm not putting too much focus on these. I, I encourage you to study these on your own. Again, five-week class, can't do all of it. Retaliation and loving one's enemies. Um, I think in a nutshell, what I can say is, again, that heart change more than outward behavior. Uh, but in this portion, I want to return to the first part that I read, the salt of the earth and light of the world, and particularly that light of the world uh, portion. Now, light of the world, where have we heard that before? Who has said that about himself in Scripture? Jesus himself says it in John's Gospel. He says, I am the light of the world. And similarly, uh, writing about Jesus, uh, the evangelist John uh, talks about how a great light has shone through him, it's shone in our darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. So it's curious that Jesus here uh, turns the phrase, he says, you are the light of the world. He's talking, of course, to the people gathered um, there at the, the mount. And remember, who were those people? Well, it's all the people he was healing. A great crowd came to him after he healed the sick, the afflicted, those with diseases and pains, uh, those who were oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, etc., etc., etc. So Jesus has a reputation of being this great healer. And so you can imagine that the people gathered there were people who are broken and needy and need uh, God's uh, grace and healing. And so for him to turn to them and say, and to us, say, you are the light of the world, uh, it's a curious phrase, uh, particularly as he called himself the light of the world. How in the world could we be the light of the world if he's the light of the world? And moreover, how can we be the light of the world if I'm uh, just so broken and so needy? Well, he goes on, he says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Uh, so in other words, don't, don't hide this light. Uh, show it off to others. Shine it before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Well, I'm going to make an argument this morning uh, that we are only the light of the world if indeed uh, we're in touch with the true light of the world, Jesus. And so um, you all remember from science class in middle school perhaps, uh, the first time I remember hearing that um, you know the sun uh, doesn't move, but it's in fact... Uh, the earth that moves around the sun. I thought that was fascinating. And then, of course, the moon that goes around us. Now, the moon shines. We all recognize we see the moon at night. But we know the moon produces no light on its own. It's just a rock spinning in space. What light does it shine? 
reflects the sun. It reflects the sun. It reflects the sun. So the argument I'm making this morning is, uh, you're the light of the world, I'm the light of the world, because we're the moons that reflect the sun's glory. We're the moons that have no light in ourselves, uh, but Jesus shines on us, and it shows off to the world His goodness. Not because we have any goodness in us, but because He's deigned to use us uh, to proclaim Him. And so the more uh, we're in touch with Him, and that's not in our control. I mean, yes, we can read the Bible. Yes, we can go to worship. Yes, we can surround ourselves with Christians. But again, ultimately, this is the Holy Spirit's work. But as we are uh, in touch with those means of grace, He shines His light on us, and the world can't help but see it. So we need not hide it. We need not be ashamed that we're Christian. We need not be ashamed that we're Episcopalian even. Uh, but that we're here uh, to receive His light that it might reflect off of us. And how does it reflect off of us? Well, it does reflect in our good works, driven by love, driven that's uh, inspired by uh, the Holy Spirit. I love one of Luther's, you're going to learn I love Luther if you hadn't known that already. Uh, Luther writes a treatise called The Freedom of a Christian. Have you all heard this work before? Again, I don't know if you're the nerdy reading type like me. Uh, although in parenthood, I don't read near as much as I used to just because of uh, our weird sleep schedule. Uh, but Luther makes the argument that we're, of course, free in Christ. We're Christians are free. We're no longer bound uh, by rules and legalism and regulation. But we've been set free. But our freedom is not unfettered to do whatever we want whenever we want. That's how the sort of the Western world uh, uh, of our um, tradition kind of interprets freedom. I can do what I want when I want. Instead, he argues that freedom is not simply freedom from, but it's also freedom for. And we're free to love and serve our neighbor. We're free. Love has freed us to do that. It's no longer an obligation to love and serve our neighbor, but we're freed up to do it. Once you've been cared for and loved by God in his gospel, now you can actually go out and love God and love your neighbor. And so we're freed to do that. And so that's how the, the world encounters this light. Um, I, I don't think that um, God is necessarily calling us here at the Advent to be a soup kitchen church. We've got a day school uh, we've got a lot of programs, but there are outreach needs in our community and in our world. And again, I'm not putting this on you to achieve, but it's for us to have eyes and ears uh, open to the needs of the world. Because again, we've been given everything in the gospel. We lack nothing in God. And so it turns our, our gaze outward. Instead of looking upon ourselves and our needs and my belly that needs to be full and my, uh, my ego that needs to be padded and uh, all the needs that you and I have, God has filled those needs and so we can be attuned to the needs of others. That's how the light shines on us and through us, and yes, even in us. So it recalibrates, again, how we read the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, when you hear that word, you are the light of the world, we've got to go through sort of a filter to understand how indeed we are the light of the world. So I've, I've used all this. I don't have a, a Johnny Cash song this week, I'm afraid to say, but I hope the Chronox inspired you. Let me pull that back up and just open up for a few minutes uh, for you to comment or question on either the text or um, the art, or anything unrelated that you deem fit. <laughs> it seems like that the um, almost wanted to see there'd be like a third panel on the right. You have you have the, the law, um, which we're you know we're born with and we you know, relate to our sin, and then you have the grace of Jesus, but then you have works that emanate from our love of Christ. It's mm -hmm. almost like there's there's almost like a three-part series. Yeah, and I think this is um, probably the wisdom, again, of that tradition that came from Luther, is I agree with you. Um, it would be nice to see that. 
But the problem with that, it can be, not always, but can be, to start looking upon that and to forget the progression and to start thinking, well, I'm a good person. That, that's always the fear. And this is where the Puritan tradition goes, by the way. Uh, so the, the Reformation um, doesn't end with Luther and Calvin, but after, after some time, um, people are getting unsettled in the Church of England. Reformation does not happen as quickly as they like. And they want uh, Christians to start acting like it. And so they start putting new commands and new burdens on people. Um, and so the Puritans use, not that you are, Duncan, but use their own good works, and they look in the mirror and say, look how awesome I'm doing. And that's the fear um, of preaching our good works. So we don't, we don't proclaim our good works, but we can't help but do good works in light of this, uh, this word that's been spoken to us. But I hear you, and I think uh, that's the church's task, is to be so filled with uh, the Holy Spirit, to be so moved by the gospel, that we can't help but go out and love our neighbor. I also feel like it's so why you do it. You know, so yeah. the law points it out, points out your sin, and then you're convicted mm-hmm. you know, to hate the sin, mm-hmm. to want to actually truly repent and not keep going back to it. Yeah. And then out of that, what is your motivation to be the light of the world? Is it, like you said, like to be like, I think they just saw me give money to the poor? Mm-hmm. Or is it because they, I am loved by you're freed now to go actually love others yeah and we're all guilty of that that, that continual need for recognition um, I mean I do it here I do it on Sundays you know I might see um, again I love love my wife and children but I might see them I might just uh, something sinister with me want to say look I want everyone to see how good of a dad I am how good of a husband I am uh, it's it's so subtle at times we kind of we kind of lose sight of it and so when we confess our sins before God not just in church, but, but daily. There should always be a placeholder uh, of sins known and sins unknown. If we b- believe and pretend that we know everything that we've done, uh, we fool ourselves. The implications of our sin is much deeper than our consciousness of it. Sometimes there's something deep and sinister that we're not aware of. So we do return to sin, unfortunately. Uh, and again, going back to Luther, he's, he talked about how baptism, in baptism, the old man is drowned. Uh, that's, the, that's the image, that we're drowned and we're killed, and then Christ restores us and resurrects us to new life. And Luther says, but by golly, that old Adam, that bastard sure can swim. In other words, he keeps coming back. That old Adam and Eve, that instinct, uh, while from God's perspective we're counted just and righteous, we're, we're imputed with his righteousness, there's still uh, this existential reality that we, we still are sinners. We still are sinners. And so that's why, and if you hadn't heard Cameron's sermon today, uh, I commend it to you. He talked about how uh, the only answer for uh, our sin and our rebellion and our um, separation from God is not to try harder, but to return to that same old good news of the gospel. That's the only way uh, it can be achieved. Well, any other thoughts? I hear folks uh, leaving. Any other thoughts on today's subject? Thank you all so much. God bless you. Let's, let's close in prayer and we'll, we'll be dismissed. Almighty God, we give you thanks uh, for your word. We thank you, Lord, that uh, Jesus, um, your son, we thank you that uh, he's our savior, he's our Messiah. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, Lord, we see our teaching uh, Messiah. He's taught us what is good. He's taught us what is right. And Lord, uh, let us be humble. Uh, Move us to humility that we ourselves are not righteous. We ourselves are not the light of the world. But we ask that you would shine that light upon us, that we would receive it and reflect it. Uh, for your glory and for the welfare of the world. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.
You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.